Welcome to Transit Unplugged, the award-winning podcast where you hear from North America's and the world's top transit leaders. And today is no exception because today we'll be speaking with the general manager of King County Metro in Seattle, Washington, Rob Gannon. King County Metro just won the Outstanding Large Transit Agency Award from the American Public Transportation Association. So we're excited to have Rob on our show where he talks about his background, what his motivation is for leading this transit system and how they have become one one of the only growing transit systems as it comes to ridership in America. You'll hear all of that on Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. I'm Paul Comfort, your host of Transit Unplugged, and today I'm in Washington, D.C. at the Apto Mobility Summit, speaking with Rob Gannon, the general manager of King County Metro Transit. Rob, thanks for being with us. Paul, my pleasure. Yeah. So Rob leads the eighth largest transit system in America, almost 400,000 passengers a day, and growing. I'm going to ask you in a few minutes. How do you do it? But just give me a little bit right up front. How do you do it? What are you doing in Seattle that's so different and so cool? I don't know that we're doing anything different or cool. I think we're capitalizing on what has worked well in that region, and we're just continuing to promote it and advance it. We're very fortunate in Seattle that people love their bus system. So we're trying to continue our investment in the system, expand not only the hours of service, but the neighborhoods, the frequency, the whole thing. Okay. Uh, it's a large service area, too. So we have the benefit of a growing population. A lot of people are moving to Seattle. And yeah. So we're expanding as the region is expanding. And frankly, that's one of the big secrets to our success. That's great. Well, how'd you end up there? Tell us a little about your background and how you ended up as CEO of this eighth largest transit system in America. It's very much a non-traditional path to transit executive. So it's easiest if I go back to the beginning. Yeah, do that. Um, so my first real job was working for what was then a little known outfit um, selling books online. So in 1997, I started with a company called Amazon.com <laughs> when very few people had really even heard about it. I had the good fortune to walk in the door as an entry-level customer service agent. Wow. At the time, there was less than 500 employees or right about there. So you were best buds with Jeff Bezos? I wasn't best buds with him, <laughs> but it was at a time in the company's history where he was still walking the halls. And you could tell he was coming because he has this well-known, very big laugh. And, uh, uh, he still walked around and engaged with everybody, and no doubt he still does it, but it's a yeah. much larger company now. So I started there, and I worked my way up during a period of intense growth and went from entry-level customer service agent to director of U.S. customer service operations and also with responsibilities about coordinating how the platform scaled to a larger set of regions as the company expanded, but also how did we preserve that the core company culture of serving the customer with just a relentless focus to please them. So that's where I started. Okay. I think that's important because that's what continues to drive me right. um, as a leader in this industry is how do we continue to serve the customer? I moved back to Montana after about four years at Amazon and went into public higher education. So my goal was to figure out how to go to graduate school and I took a job with the university. Uh, the University of Montana. And I spent the next eight years 
not going to graduate school, but working in public higher education. And this is the next phase of my career that is really uh, transformative for me because I realized that a public institution of higher education has not just a role in educating citizens, um, it has a role in being a stakeholder in the community. Universities speak of the town and gown relationship, right? The way that the community interacts with the university and the university interacts with the community. And it has to be symbiotic. Uh, so eight years, I really learned how a university can thrive and succeed if they pay attention to that. And conversely, how they, how they cannot succeed. They can lose funding, they can lose credibility, they can endure all sorts of- What was your of, role there at, in Montana? So I started out as the director of human resources. Okay and then moved into a position where I was overseeing all of the academic finances for the institution, as well as contributing to the leadership of the institution, serving yeah. the provost and the president. So Really? Wow. Really got to see what it means to conduct public administration yeah. in, in a pretty important environment. The University of Montana is the flagship university in, in Montana, so sure, what goes yeah. on there really important. So then what do I do? I, yeah. I moved back to Seattle and having a difficult time trying to convince people what the director of academic budgets and personnel at a university does, I leveraged some experience in human resources and got on with King County, right? King County, the government, right. in a human resources management position. And after about two years of doing that, I started working more directly with Kevin Desmond, who was the general manager at the time. Okay. And he offered me the opportunity to become his deputy. So. Five years ago, I was his deputy, and then three years later, I became the, the transit general manager. So he left, and you kind of stepped up? He left, and I stepped up, and we've really just been continuing to grow the brand, grow the service, and grow the, the validity of public transportation in the Seattle region and in the entire 39 jurisdictions that make yeah. up King County. That's awesome. So you've, you've kind of had three careers then. Right? Like Amazon and then university and now this. And now this. Yeah. That's cool. So I'm trying to integrate it and make sure that I stay relentlessly focused on the customer, know our place in the community, but now begin to advance the concepts of why is public transportation so critical to economic development? Why is it so critical to a human capacity endeavor, right? How do we make sure that public transportation connects people to opportunity and that 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 transportation connection is not a barrier, but an enabler. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm reading this book uh, by a psychologist and uh, how to have the right mindset. And there's a quote in there that keeps ringing in my head. And it says, we got to stop selling what people are buying. And that's really what you and I are here doing today at this Apto Mobility Summit is we're finding what people are buying now when it comes to mobility. And it's not all just traditional straight line buses on bus routes. There's a lot more things happening. Do you think that's, that's right? Do you think that's where things are going? I think it is right, but I also think it, there are many factors there. So, yes, I think we need to continue to advance the importance of public transportation and the services that fall under that umbrella. I think our challenge is to broaden that umbrella and make sure customers understand that it's not just a bus or a light rail vehicle that they're jumping on, right? Mm -hmm. That we want to present legitimately a set of services that they can access and then get to where they need to go easy, inexpensively if possible, and conveniently most importantly. So I think that's our first challenge is how okay. do we project that image to the customer when the customer thinks of us right now, generally speaking, as a slow-moving bus in a congested region. Right. right. So part of it is starting to sell, if you will, what they don't know we can even offer. 
Okay. Second phase, I think, is we have to look internally and say, what are we doing well? And how do we continue to do it really well? And so the secret to our sauce, of course, is we, better than anybody else, deliver high-capacity fixed route public transportation. Yes. If we lose our sights on that, then we begin to erode the very thing that has brought us to a successful position. That's good, yeah. But the next phase is also, but how do we build, at least for King County Metro, how do we build more capacity to provide more service to our customers? Okay. We are uh, suffering in Seattle from the problems of congestion. We're also the victims of our geography, which makes it difficult to build more infrastructure or more roads. And then we're also the beneficiaries of a thriving economy, uh, which is bringing more people to our region. So we're not only building more capacity so we can be a more effective transit agency, we need to build it as fast as we can because the customers are descending upon us. (laughs) The demand is real. It's there tomorrow. We're prepared to build things in years. So how do we shorten that delivery time frame to meet customer expectations? That's great. So that's kind of the three steps you're working with there in King County? I would say so, right? Yeah. Defining our services as mobility, not right. just bus operations. How do we build things and deliver the capacity when we need to? The other thing that we're really focused on is how do we do that in partnership, right? So we have many jurisdictions that make up the King County region, all okay. of them wanting more service. Like have, Seattle plus a bunch of other cities, right? Seattle, so Seattle, sort of the, the defining mecca of the region. Right. But suburbs that are now asserting that they're not really suburbs of Seattle, that their own economic development uh, engines. The city Gary of Thomas is having the same thing in Dallas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. City of Bellevue doesn't right? want to oh, yeah. you know, be second in line behind Seattle. They want to be first in line in defining the region. Yeah. City of Redmond asserting that just because they're on the east side doesn't mean yeah. that they're the Microsoft the little brother or a little sister to, to Bellevue, that they're defining their own sense. And then we also have to take a truly regional perspective, right? Just beyond the county's traditional borders are growing economic centers like Tacoma, which is not even that far from Olympia. If you look to the north, we're talking about Linwood and Everett and Bellingham. And so what you're really seeing is a developing corridor, right? There, where public transportation and economic development must go hand in hand. Interstate 5 cannot support more cars, so we need to find a way to build out the public transportation infrastructure. And I, I would say ultimately we're, we're thinking, or it's not too far of a stretch to say that Vancouver, British Columbia to Portland is really the, wow. the thriving economic corridor. But That's if interesting. You, if you introduce bottlenecks of transportation at any one of those junctures, then effectively you're closing off the port of Seattle. So all the goods and services coming in into the region will stop right there if we don't start looking at other solutions. Yeah. So we're trying to see the big picture as well as how to deliver something meaningful to the customer right now. I see that happening really in a lot of places in the country. Where I'm from, Baltimore-Washington corridor has kind of become this mecca. And then you've got the New York to Boston. So you've got your own thing going out there in the Northwest. Yeah. And I'd say that the governance structures in the region work well, but we have not yet figured out how multiple governance structures can be effectively united and stay, stay focused on a longer-term set of goals. Right. How are you governed? How is uh, your, your system? Do you have a board of directors? How are they appointed? That kind of a thing. So we have a bit of a unique aspect, I would say predominantly 
transit agencies have a, a governing board and we have a governing board, but King County Metro actually sits inside of a county governance structure. So as a general manager, I report to the King County executive and elected official. Okay. And in turn, I have a nine member King County council, each of them elected, each of them representing a district within the, the suburban area of King County. Each of those elected council members also is in coordination with the cities and jurisdictions that make up their region. So um, I have the good fortune of having many elected stakeholders feeding their good ideas and intentions into our system. So it makes for a complicated governance structure, but it also makes for one where when when a region speaks to us, when a subregion or a city right. speaks to us, we know that they're speaking with a lot more emphasis on what's important yeah. to their constituents or to their to their subregion of the county. How, what's the population of the King County? So King County proper within all the borders has about 2.1, 2.2 million people. I think okay. 2.1 is the, the more common. you go beyond that? Uh, well, what we I say we go beyond that is because the Puget Sound region as a whole is growing, right? Yes. And so that's where Snohomish County and Pierce County really figure into it. Uh, and that's an important factor because as we look out for our long-range plan, we anticipate a million more people coming to the region, and the region will redefine itself, right? Those people will end up in surrounding counties, and yet will still likely want to travel in and through the economic hubs of activity that are Seattle and Bellevue and, and other areas. People don't define our service area by the, the boundaries of right. where they live. jurisdictional boundary, yeah. How do you interact with Sound Transit? So Sound Transit is uh, the regional transportation authority, but their primary set of goals right now are to deliver on a light rail infrastructure, right? So over the past many years, they've been building light rail that right now goes from our airport, which is just south of the city, all the way north into a, a, a neighborhood of Seattle called Capitol Hill. It actually goes all the way to the University of Washington. Soon it will extend further and further and begin to go north as far as Linwood, south into Pierce County, and importantly, it's also going east to the other side of Lake Washington, serving Bellevue and those corridors. So. We interact with them because we are, in essence, both the bus service provider that is the workhorse of the system right now. We operate the existing link light rail system. So we're under contract with Sound Transit to provide that service. And then we are trying to literally, figuratively, and in every means possible, assure that King County's services are fully integrated with the light rail network as it builds out. So we work in close partnership with Sound Transit. And, and Peter? With Peter Rogoff, yeah, their yeah. CEO. Peter and I meet regularly, and we're trying to solve problems together. That's great. Yeah. That's really good that you're able to kind of have a hand-in-glove relationship there. You don't always see that in some of these places. We don't, and it's not without its moments of friction because yeah. Peter has the benefit of not just the 39 jurisdictions inside of King County, but he gets to add Pierce County and Snohomish County okay. to his complicated mix, and that's how his board is made up. He has a, a board that is made up of three counties worth of representation. So yeah, we're, we're approaching regional solutions and regional collaboration and integration. But yeah. um, the governance structure is not yet as nimble as we would need it to be. And that's part of the challenge yeah. of growth right, right. now. Right. Absolutely. I'm 
familiar with all that governance stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your service itself, like your bus and how many buses, employees, budget, all that kind Just give us a scope of service of what you do there. Yeah, so just in broad brush terms, we operate a fleet of just over 1,400 coaches. Okay. We do that out of eight operating bases. We have about 5,000 employees. So uh, I think our official count is just over 4,800, but we have a lot of temporary employees coming in and we're building out our network of employees and services. We have a rough annual operating budget of just over $800 million and a capital program that is uh, has largely been dormant, but is now growing. So we're uh, growing that steadily in the out years. Uh, Let's see, we... Do you do bus and what else? So we do do over 400,000 daily trips on bus. We operate the link light rail system. We have a full accessible services system, which is a key component of what we do. The paratransit? The paratransit, Uh sorry. We're developing, we have, and we're continuing to develop what we call community connections, which is local access, transit, and dial-a-ride services. Other things we're doing, we're experimenting and using pilot programs to see if transportation network companies can help us with the first and last mile delivery. We're going to venture into thinking about how do we partner and collaborate with microtransit and see if they can help in those areas. Going back to my earlier comment about defining ourselves as a mobility agency, it's really bringing all of those into a common set of services that the customer can interact and take full advantage of. And I would emphasize especially our paratransit service, okay. right? We, yeah, let's talk is, about that. Yeah. That is not an adjunct service to how we provide regional mobility to our customers, right? We, we want and we demand that we're approaching universal access in things as common as how do they access the service literally, how do they walk on to the service, but also in how do they plan their trip, how do they expect their trip to be just as reliable, if not more reliable, than fixed route service. So... Do you outsource that to First Transit or some folks like that, your paratransit? We do. We outsource our our paratransit service, and we're in the middle of an RFP to really revamp and reevaluate how we can do that and do it more effectively with an eye towards better service to our customers, especially those that are transit dependent, but also an eye towards how do we invest in this service. I don't think it's a, a too bold a statement to say that many people look at accessible services or paratransit service as an additional cost to the transit agency. Right. We are trying to look at it in a very meaningful way as part of our operating cost because we are serving simply a customer. The customer may have unique or special needs, but fundamentally they're a customer availing themselves of our service. That's wonderful, Rob. That's a great view. I spent a lot of my career working in paratransit and I really feel like the cost of it as a portion of the overall operating budget is growing in most transit agencies, faster than the rest of the transit agency is growing, the budget-wise. It's one of the only growing passenger count parts of the service for most cities. Most cities, commuter train, commuter bus, and paratransit are growing. Right. Subway, light rail, and bus are going down. You've got a different thing in Seattle going on there. But so many times, it's viewed as an appendage, as you said. But people like Robbie Mackinnon in Kansas City and other places, and it sounds like where you're at too, are viewing it much more holistically as part of the service there and are looking to kind of expand opportunities for people. I mean, do you have any, do you want to share with us your vision of what you, what you hope it to be? Well, one, I want to be clear that, you know, we are still on this journey and how we serve the paratransit community or the riders with those unique special needs and accommodations 
we are aspiring to say this is a service. This is a service universally accessible to all. But it comes with its bumps along the road. Sure. So we are not meeting our service expectations for that group of riders. But we're also not meeting the service expectations <laughs> of our other riders, right? Our other riders, those on the fixed route service, those that are traveling in peak commuting times, right? Right. So truly, in the metaphor, we are trying to lift all boats and recognize that each and every one of them has a place in our harbor, if you will. One of the defining characteristics, I hope, of our agency is that we provide service through a lens of equity. How do we assure that we have common means of accessibility, but how do we serve the disadvantaged communities, the historically disadvantaged communities? Um, everything from looking at census tract data to say, are we planning our routes with a mind towards both developing a system and improving reliability, but are we also looking at those who may be on the margins of our system historically and how do we, how do we better serve them? How do we acknowledge the shifting demographics of our region as more people move in, as we experience, like many other large regions, the suburbanization of poverty? We want to be sure that through the lens of equity, we are delivering effective service and that fundamentally we remember that we are a service to the public. Right? We are not a service to the affluent. We are a service to everyone. Mm -hmm. so. How are you funded? We are funded primarily through sales tax. Okay. So that is the major source of our revenue. We have some bold goals on fare box recovery. So that, like what? that contributes, we have a, a floor of 25% and a target of 30%. Right now we're at about 28% of wow, box recovery on our operating costs. Did you just raise fares? Actually, we just simplified our fares. Okay. And so I'm not trying to give you a tricky That's answer. That's a brilliant answer, by the way. <laughs> uh, some of our riders did experience a modest fare increase. But okay. what we did is make fares simpler for everyone. Um, yeah, so they we, do get kind of complex if you don't put some effort on that. I agree with yeah. that, yeah. So we took out our, our zone surcharge, uh, okay. and we took out our peak surcharge, and we now just have a flat, a flat. fare of $2.75. We still have a... We're very proud of what we refer to as our ORCA lift program, yes. which is an opportunity for those on the lower end of the economic scale to avail themselves of our services through a program that allows them to enroll, and then their ride is at a reduced fare at $1.50. Okay. okay. Um, Very good. Making sure that people have access to transit, and that itself, the cost, is not a barrier to them finding their, their pathway to opportunity. Tell us about your fleet sum. You've got a lot of buses. Are you pursuing anything in the alternative fuels world? So we are, well, so primarily we have a diesel hybrid fleet. We have aggressive okay. goals, not just to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but to end our dependence on diesel and even hybrids over the next 12 years. So we're in the process of buying our last set of hybrids. And we are trying to lead the Pacific Northwest and join other transit agencies in the move towards a battery electric fleet. So we have a, a small fleet right now. We're about to, a small fleet of battery electrics. We're about to expand that. We continue to test the charging infrastructure and, and decide who has the best vehicles that can serve our unique needs. But we're making the long-term move towards battery electric fleet. So as sort of geek out with you here for a minute, yeah. as we're looking at building and expanding our transit system, we know we have to add base capacity place to, to bring our operators in, to bring our fleet in and do the necessary maintenance. So we're going to add an eighth and potentially a ninth operating base, deliberately looking to building battery electric infrastructure and the capacity, the excess capacity to retrofit our existing base okay. bases so that maintenance can be all geared towards yeah. 
a battery electric fuel system. I was just with Dorval Carter. He told me that they did a study, and he's just bought 20 Proterra electric buses, but they just did a study over several years, found that electric buses are saving $24,000 a year in fuel and $30,000 a year in maintenance on average, $54,000 a year per bus in operating costs. I mean, if that pans out across a fleet like yours, you suddenly found your nest egg. <laughs> uh, we suddenly either found our nest egg or we're just ahead of the curve as diesel prices Right, you know, right. Continue yeah. to grow and uh, put lots of players out of the market, right? Yeah. The reliance on diesel fuel, I don't, it's not a bold bet to say diesel fuel is going to continue to get ex more expensive and, and drive fleet costs. I think the bold bet is how rapidly can we expand towards battery electric? And in that position, especially as a large agency, how do we continue to influence how the manufacturers think about providing that service? And so, we're on the move to get to 120 battery electric vehicles. Okay. We have a relationship with Proterra and we're working with others as well. Uh, and we're pretty demanding about the specs and we're, we're eager to share with them our experience so that they can continue to make improvements in charging infrastructure and propulsion systems and just also the overall amenities of the coach. So that's good. It's a, it's a good program and, yeah. and we're excited about what the future means. Speaking of the future, let's talk about that. I mean, we've talked a little bit about you're looking into microtransit, TNCs, electric buses. What else do you think is coming next in the future from your perch at the top of your agency? You know, what are you looking for for the next five to ten years for public transit agencies like Seattle's? Yeah. So, I think I mentioned that one, we're defining ourselves as a mobility agency. Right. Two, we're doing it to build the capacity necessary to serve our customers. Three, we're doing it in partnership with the region. I will tell you honestly, sincerely, that the most important thing we're doing right now is preparing our organization, the people that make up our organization, for the changes I think are going to come inevitably, whether they're a year out, five years out, or 10 years out. Okay. We also have an aging workforce, and we're not unique in that, but an aging workforce in a competitive labor environment can present some real challenges. So we're working to figure out how can we invigorate our training and workforce development programs so that we bring in a world-class fleet of transit operators, that we have the best mechanics in the business, and that they're not just preparing to turn another wrench, but they're looking at our fleet as a technology platform. How are we preparing our workforce um, to embrace new technologies, especially battery electric? How are we dynamically routing our system, and how can we be more responsive to customer demands and shrink the process by which we set schedules and define our services, and that requires a more nimble workforce than a typical transit agency historically has. Huh. Leadership and development programs, uh, all the way from how do we prepare the next generation of leaders in our agency to how do we bring on board the next generation of crafts and trades, right? So apprenticeship programs are gonna be a key feature, and fundamentally, uh, if we don't invest in our workforce and help them prepare for better service and the services are our customers expect. It won't matter how green our fleet is or how how expansive our capacity is. We need the people at the core of our system to operate. And that means working hand in hand with our labor partners. I have said this inside the agency and it bears repeating in this sort of interview. We have built a great transit agency working with our employees, working with our partners in labor. And we're gonna to continue to build a great transit agency by working with our partners in labor. A lot of talk right now about the recent Supreme Court decision, the Janus decision, and what that means for union-represented employees in a public work environment. And 
while it matters, it does not matter to King County because we are committed to our labor partners. We're committed to everything from being innovative to addressing day-to-day -day operational needs by continuing to work effectively with our labor partners. That's great. It's a great vision. I can see why they picked you yeah. <laughs> to run the place. <laughs> I hope so. We'll see. I mean, the, the proof is still in how well do we serve our employees? How well do we serve the region? How, mm -hmm. how can we continue to build, to build upon the momentum we have in the Pacific Northwest with growing ridership? But uh, it can change. Right? It can change very quickly. Well, you and Houston are, uh, according to the APTA studies and other, are the only two cities in America right now that are seeing consistent ridership growth. So for our listeners all over America in the transit business, do you have any thoughts for them about what they can do just generally based on what you've seen there in the last couple of years that's working? That's a tough question, Paul. I can be candid and say yeah. that our success is not completely of our own making in King County, right? When you have such a vibrant economy and many people moving to the region, it helps yes. sustain ridership, right? I think what keeps us afloat, what keeps us going is our focus on the customer. Many transit agencies do that, but our focus on employees and having them fully connected to the mission of the agency is right. critical. That's good. Yeah. Defining our service, um, not just as public transportation, but almost fundamental to economic development. There are times when I want to say to the world that Transportation is more than just a service, it's a human right, right? That, that is core to our existence, but it is foundational to people's access to opportunity. I think the public transportation industry needs to have that deep sense of a calling and a purpose. Yes. Uh, and there are plenty of folks out in the world who would like to see the public dollar go elsewhere. Uh, but when the credibility of an agency erodes, when we're not delivering on service, we're losing the game. But when we have that credibility and we're advancing regional goals, then I think we're defining our purpose. When we continue to align our purpose with that of the region, then we're a partner in delivering that, whether that's a public-private partnership or just a partnership with our riders. So that's, that's key. I think just continuing to find our services, not just public transportation, but essential to the well-being of our, of our economy and even our democracy. That's great. Well, Rob Gannon, thanks so much for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged, an opportunity for you to share, I think, a, a high-level view of what's motivating you and the Northwest region there of people are connected to their transportation system, their mobility system in your region. And as I mentioned earlier, I can't think of a better person to lead it than you. you you've got such a vision, and I like how it's not just about the buses. It's not just about you've got a, a fully integrated view of how transit should be operated. And, and I appreciate you sharing it with us today. Paul, thank you very much. My pleasure to be yeah. here, and uh, I thank you for your kind words there. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.